You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Adam Mutasib. Well, uh, if you're new with us, we love going through the Bible here at RCC, and we're going through the book of Acts. We're in a series we're calling Movement. We just go verse by verse through the book of Acts. And this morning we find ourselves in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through, I believe, 12-ish, 13. And uh, I'm going to pray for us because we're talking about the Holy Spirit, and it would make sense that we would need the Holy Spirit's help as we talk about Him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for gifting us the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would supernaturally empower me to preach your word faithfully. Would you allow us to hear your word and to apply it to our lives Give us an awareness of your presence and your ministry, and give us a dependence on you, Holy Spirit, as we walk step by step with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, those of you that are parents uh, know that bedtime can be a challenge. It often feels like a relay race. You know, I put my kid to bed, I cover him in a blanket, I give him a kiss, and he's like, Daddy, wait, I need a cup of water. I go, all right, go get the water, bring it back. He takes a sip. No, no, Daddy, I need Elmo. I'm like, all right, I get Elmo. No, no, Daddy, I need three more hugs. What, why three hugs? Okay. Anyway, like, what else do you need? And it just feels like over and over again, he wants something. Well, one time I'm, I'm, I did all these things, and I'm leaving the bedroom, and Aiden, my son, my oldest, he's about four years old, is like, Daddy, don't leave. I don't want to be alone. And I told my son, this is like 8.30 at night, it is his bedtime. And I said, well, son, God is always with you. You're never alone. And Aiden said, yeah, I know, but I want to be able to see him and touch him and hug him. I want someone here with me. And, you know, I find myself feeling a lot like my son Aiden when it comes to the Holy Spirit. Like, I want a God I can see and touch. You know, when we're having a rough time, we want someone who can talk to us, someone who can put his arm around us. And... This is why John 16, verse 7 is so crazy. Because in John 16, verse 7, Jesus says this. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. The Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Are you serious? Jesus is saying to his disciples, it is better to have an invisible Holy Spirit than a physical present Jesus. I don't know about you, but if I could choose between Holy Spirit and Jesus, I'm gonna be honest, I might go Jesus. You know what I mean? Like we have a conversation, we play basketball, get some guacamole, I don't know, whatever we wanna do. It just, that sounds better to me. But Jesus himself says, no, 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 it is better that you have the Holy Spirit. And you ever wonder what the Holy Spirit does, who he is? I, like, I, I know he exists, but why? And I think the Holy Spirit, in my life and in the life of many churchgoers, is tragically neglected. There are millions of people that go to church in America who cannot confidently say they've experienced the Holy Spirit's presence or action in their lives over the past year. And many don't believe they actually can. But if you read the book of Acts, like we're going through verse by verse, 
you'll see that the Holy Spirit is as essential to a believer's existence as air is to staying alive. You would know the Spirit led the Christians in the early church to do unexplainable things, to live lives that did not make sense in the, to the culture around them, and to ultimately, the Spirit empowered them to spread the gospel, the story of God's grace, to the ends of the earth. And so, even 2,000 years later, we need to be asking the same question of the Holy Spirit that these unbelievers asked in the crowd in verse 12. What does this mean? What does the Holy Spirit mean for our lives? And we'll see in these 13 verses, three phenomena or three acts of the Holy Spirit that are still present and available to us today. We see that the Holy Spirit is an external power. He is an internal dweller and he is a global unifier. And my hope today is that you would believe John 16 that the Holy Spirit is better than a present physical Jesus and that you would have an awareness of who he is and a dependence on him every moment of the day. Actually, Paul says in the New Testament that we are to walk step by step in the Spirit. I love that image. Like, I can't take a step without checking in with the Holy Spirit first, and he's taking it with me. That's my hope for you today. So let's start with number one. We see in Acts 2 that the Holy Spirit is an external power. If you look at verses 1 and 2, we pick up on the day of Pentecost. The disciples are waiting in the upper room, following Jesus' instruction. He said, wait until the Holy Spirit comes, then go. And then here we find in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were, they were all together in one place, the disciples. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now the text doesn't say it was a mighty wind. It says it was like a mighty wind. So it's not actually a wind. And the point is, is that they're experiencing something that was coming from outside of them. This was not an internal experience arising from the inside. This is an external power arriving. And it didn't just come from outside them. The Holy Spirit came from outside the world. The text says he came from heaven. Therefore, to be filled with the Spirit is to have a divine power come from outside of you into you. And that, my friends, immediately confronts what our culture says about our problems and the solution. You see, culture will tell you, especially American culture, all of your problems come from outside of you, and inside of you, you have what it takes to solve them. Christianity says the opposite. Christianity says the main problem is inside of you, and out there, God has an external power to give you what you need to overcome it. I was watching an interview last week with an up-and-coming rapper named Jack Harlow. Yeah, your pastor listens to Jack Harlow. Crazy, right? Jack Harlow was like, in this interview, whatever you aspire to do, whatever you aspire to be, you can do it. Just believe in yourself. You have all the power within you you need to overcome all your obstacles in life. And that is the narrative of our culture, isn't it? If you've got problems, they're out there, and you can overcome them. Whether it's social prejudice or a dysfunctional family, our political and economic corruption, the problems are out there and you have inside you everything you need to solve them. But the Bible tells us the opposite, doesn't it? Martin Luther, one of the great reformers says, human nature is curved in on itself. That our fundamental nature is to be self-centered, to feel as if we are the center of the universe. And we're so self-centered, we're, we're actually blind to how self-centered we really are. And this is what makes the world a miserable place. 
is because you have billions of self-centered people only thinking about themselves trampling on each other. See, the world says the problems are out there, the solution is in here. The Bible says the problem is in here, and the power of God is the solution out there. And the solution is found in verse 4. It says they were filled, all of them, with the Holy Spirit. Filled with this external power, and they were never the same afterwards. Now, these are the same disciples who were dedicated to following Jesus no matter what but bailed as soon as Jesus was arrested. These were not impressive guys. Yet when the Spirit descended and dwelt them, a radical change occurred. From this point on in verse 4, none of these disciples were ever the same. The Holy Spirit changed them. I mean, Peter, just a, uh, earlier when Jesus was arrested, a little girl says, aren't you with Jesus? And Peter's like, no, I'm not. Like a little girl is intimidating him. And after he's filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter, in the next couple of verses, stands up before a crowd of thousands and said, this Jesus whom you crucified. Imagine saying that to a crowd of a thousand people. And thousands, it says, are baptized from that sermon. How does the guy scared of little girls say, you crucified Jesus to a crowd of thousands? How does Paul, the killer of Christians, become a missionary to reach more Christians? How does Peter... A guy who struggled with racism towards Gentiles suddenly become an advocate for diversity in Acts. It's the Holy Spirit. You see, the disciples, after Acts 2, verse 4, are no longer timid. They're no longer confused. They're bold and they're inspired. And they begin to display and declare the gospel of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit to the ends of the earth. And I don't know about you, but I so badly want that external power in my life, don't you? Like, I want to live a life that is not explainable without the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't want people to look at my life and say, man, that makes sense. It's his charisma, or it's his talent, or it's his education, or it's his background, or his connections. I want them to say, only God could have supernaturally accomplished that. I knew what he was like before, and I see him now. That was a miracle. I want to live in a way where I'm so dependent on the Holy Spirit, where I say, God, if you don't come through right now, I'm screwed. Even before the sermon, I'm like praying, like, God, I have nothing to give these wonderful people. Spirit of God, you've got to speak through me if anything good is going to come of this. And God wants that for all of our lives. But we often do not live with an awareness or a dependence on the Spirit of God, do we? And I think, I think that's because we can do a lot without the Holy Spirit, can't we? We often think we don't need Him. We have talents, we have experience, we have education. Many of us are capable of living fairly successful lives according to the world standards without any strength from the Holy Spirit. Even our church growth can happen without the Holy Spirit, if we're being honest. Like you just put together a charismatic speaker, a good worship band, some hip creative events, a good staff, and boom, people will come to your church. Yet that does not mean the Holy Spirit is actively working and moving in the lives of the people that are coming just means that they're willing to sacrifice an hour of their week. And it certainly doesn't mean that people are walking out the doors, moved to worship and in awe of God. People are, in our American culture, people are more likely to leave the gathering talking about the music or the sermon rather than the one the music and the sermon is about. I didn't like that sermon about God today. 
I didn't like that music about God today. What? We should be talking about the one that's about. And I think the worst part of this is when you actually get outside the church building and you interact with believers and non-believers at work or at the park or at a restaurant, can you really, like honestly, can you really tell the difference between Christians and non-Christians? Honestly, I'm genuinely embarrassed by some of my Christian friends. Because a lot of my unbelieving friends are a lot more welcoming, a lot less prejudiced, a lot more joyful, a lot more kind. What, how does that even happen? You know, Gandhi, when uh, he was going to school, I believe in South Africa during apartheid, and did you know Gandhi was actually investigating Christianity? He almost became a Christian. He went to a church gathering. And the Christians who were prejudiced and unkind were so unappealing to Gandhi that he later said, I like your Christ, I don't like your Christians because your Christians are so unlike your Christ. In fact, my dad, who's not a Christian, went through a similar experience. He went to church in his early 20s, but he was like, I don't like these people. They, they're worse than the other people I interact with. How does that happen? Here's why. This is the key to Christians looking supernaturally different than the rest of the world. This is the key to Christians actually looking like Jesus. So Gandhi could say, I like your Christians because I like your Christ. It's verse 4. It's being filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, there are a lot of Christians who have been saved but have not been filled and depend upon, moment by moment, the Spirit of God leading them. And this reiterates the truth that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body, in your body. That verse is not primarily saying, like, you should work out or eat fruit smoothies. Take care of your body because it's temple. It's saying... God used to dwell in a building. Now the presence of God dwells in your body. So glorify God with that body. Essentially what that means is that the Holy Spirit's home is you. And if that's true, if the Holy Spirit fills us and lives in us and radically is supposed to change us like he did with the disciples, should there not be a huge difference between the person who has the Spirit of God living inside them and the person who does not? Like This is a silly illustration, but imagine if I told you that I had an encounter with God where he supernaturally empowered me to play basketball better. What would you expect to happen? My handles should get a little better, right? I should at least be able to dunk. You like this, right? This is nice, right? Come on, watch out. Come on, oh, 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 I'm going to joke you out, Cody. Watch out, yeah, all right. I've been supernaturally empowered to cross you up and break your ankles and dunk on your face. That's what you would expect, right? But if you saw me bricking shots, missing layups, having turnovers, not locking down on defense, if you saw no change in my athleticism, would you not question the validity of my supernatural encounter with God to empower me to play basketball? And there are churchgoers across the nation who say the Holy Spirit has entered them. 
They claim God has given them a supernatural ability to be more like Christ, to put their sin to death, to use their gifts to serve the church and to reach the world with the gospel. Christians talk about experiencing this, this new birth where they old new, old you and new you. Yet outside the church, they see very little difference. And what happens is that unbelievers begin to question our integrity and our sanity. And even worse, like Gandhi did, like my dad did, they begin to question our God. And can you blame them? You see, the Holy Spirit does not want to help you out a little bit. He doesn't want to make you a tinge nicer. He wants to completely transform who you are. He wants to take your timid heart and set it ablaze with strength and courage. So much so that when people look at you, they say something supernatural has taken place within you. A life change that's just as miraculous as wind and fire coming down from heaven at Pentecost. And so just take a moment and ask yourself, when was the last time you undeniably saw the Spirit working in or around you? When was the last time you, you saw, like, that was not me, God supernaturally changed me? And if you can think of a time in the last year where that's happened, you, thank God, thank the Spirit of God for changing you and using you and His presence in your life. And if you're having trouble recounting a time, perhaps it's because you've been ignoring the Spirit of God. Perhaps it's because you only have a head knowledge of who He is, but not much of an intimate relationship with Him. You know, a good barometer of the Spirit's work in your life is Galatians chapter 5. I go back to it often. Paul says the fruit of the Spirit, the effects of the Spirit, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is not you speaking in weird languages or waving a flag or doing a, a bunch of worship songs, though it can be. The fruit of the Spirit is love. It's you being more joyful. It's you being more patient. It's you being essentially more like Jesus. And I want to ask you, do you possess these traits right now to a supernatural degree? Do you have more love and joy than your atheist friend? Do you have more peace and patience than Buddhists you know? Do you exhibit more kindness and goodness and faithfulness than Muslims you know? You have more self-control than Mormons. That's a tough one. <laughs> and if God is truly living in you, shouldn't you expect to be different than everyone else? Now, I'm not saying all this to make you feel guilty. I'm right there with you. But it is meant to be a challenge to make space to give you an honest glimpse at yourself. <laughs> Do you know what it's like to be filled with an external joy? Do you experience genuine peace regardless of what is swirling on around you? Do you consistently respond with kindness no matter what someone has said to you? Don't we all want to be characterized by these attitudes? I notice it's called fruit of the Spirit. 
Because only the Spirit can produce it in you. You cannot produce it yourself. And it's called fruit singular because the one spirit produces the one fruit that incorporates all these different elements. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, goodness. And here's the reality for you, friend. I don't know about you, but I can simply not muster up more love in my heart. I cannot manufacture more patience by gritting my teeth and trying to be more patient. In the same way, I can't dunk by just trying harder to dunk. I just get hurt. Trying on my own leaves me more frustrated and defeated. And I just give in to more sin. And this is often what happens to us when it comes to church or Bible study or prayer or any spiritual discipline. We are trying to work through these actions to muster up the will to be better, to be more like Jesus. My wife gave me permission to say this, but the other day... We, were, we got a little argument, which I, it happens to pastor and his wife. Sometimes get a little tiffs. And she was like, oh, I don't know why I'm so frustrated today. I had my quiet time. As if your quiet time is gasoline in your engine that gets you going. And might I suggest to you and to myself, maybe Bible study. And maybe community and church and prayer and every other spiritual discipline we encourage you to do. Rather than a, being a spiritual ladder you climb in your own strength, are tools in which you can embrace your own helplessness and throw yourself on the power of the Holy Spirit to supernaturally change you. One of the greatest prayers you can pray today is, Holy Spirit, I am not self-controlled and no matter what I do, I cannot stop doing this. Nothing I'm doing is fixing it. By your power, help me. Help me, a sinner, gain more self-control. Without you, I can't do it. That's what it means to be aware and dependent on the Holy Spirit. Looking to an external power to come change you. James 5.17 says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it didn't rain on the earth. Did you imagine praying, God, make it not rain, and it doesn't rain for three and a half years? That's a powerful prayer. And translation here is, Elijah was a normal dude. He was not anything special. He'd be amongst us. He was just dependent on the Holy Spirit. And it didn't rain for three and a half years. And maybe this morning you're not praying for a drought. You're praying for something a lot simpler. God, help me to love my wife when she hogs the bathroom. God, help me to be patient with my kids when they keep hiding the remote control. These are not real examples. <laughs> God, give me self-control when I'm on the internet. Give me supernatural kindness when my roommate doesn't do their share. Give me supernatural joy amidst my depression. Whatever it is, that you're praying for, you want to become more like Christ, and it is not about you. Elijah was a man just like us. He just prayed fervently. And it's all about your dependence on the external power of the Holy Spirit. You are praying, friend, to the exact same God Elijah prayed to. Except you're doing it after God has already sent his son to die for you. To change, we need an external power. 
We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Second point, the Holy Spirit is an internal dweller. Verse 3 is the second of three phenomena that are associated with Pentecost. If you look at verse 3, it tells us that after the Holy Spirit descends, divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the disciples have these tongues of fire that are separated and, and come to rest on each of them. That's interesting. But do you know how significant this is? In the Old Testament, when God's glory presence shows up, his special presence shows up, it always shows up as what? Fire. So when, when God is making a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, he appears as what? A blazing torch. When he appears to Moses for the very first time in the wilderness, he appears to Moses as what? A burning bush. When, he appears, when God comes down from Mount Sinai to the people of Israel, who comes down in fire and in smoke, you see the special presence, this glory presence of God is depicted as fire. When he's leading the children of Israel through the wilderness at night, he's leading them and he appears as a pillar of fire. And when Ezekiel sees God in Ezekiel chapter 1, what does he see? Fire everywhere. You see, whenever the fire of God showed up in the Old Testament, the presence of God showed up. It was overwhelming and it was intolerable and in some cases it was fatal. And do you realize what is happening on the day of Pentecost? Every believer is now a burning bush. The glory of God, the presence of God has now come and lives in every single follower of Jesus. The presence that was once fatal now resides in us. Notice it says in end of verse 3, the Spirit came to rest on each of them. Think about that. Like in that room, in the upper room, there was apostles. The apostles were the most ordained people in the history of the world. Why do I say that? Ordained means you're trained. You're a leader in the church. You're set apart. You have authority, and I'm for all that. But in the history of the church, there's never been a group of people more ordained than the apostles because they were chosen directly by Jesus Christ himself. They were recruited by him. They were trained by him. They had a 40-day Bible conference with the resurrected Jesus. So they were really ordained. And yet, guess what? They were not the only ones that got the Holy Spirit. It says the Spirit rested on all of them, on each one, even the humblest Christian. Male, female, clergy, lay, everybody. Now, that, that's amazing, right? But what does that feel like? What does that actually mean? When Jesus has the Holy Spirit come upon him on his baptism, the early parts of his ministry, what do we hear the Father saying to Jesus? This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. You're my Son in whom I'm well pleased, and I delight in you. And you say, of course God says that about Jesus. Jesus. But in Romans 8.16, we're told for all Christians that the Spirit of God comes into our hearts and bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. In Galatians 4.6, Paul says that the Spirit of God comes into our hearts crying out, Abba, Father, essentially, Daddy, it's the same thing for us, the fullness of the Spirit. You see, the job of the Holy Spirit is to come inside you, in your heart, and to tell you about God's love for you, His delight in you, and the fact that you're His child. 
How does the Holy Spirit do that? Well, in John 14, 15 through 16, Jesus is talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit that he's going to send. And he says, look, I've told you many things, but the Holy Spirit will take what I've told you and manifest it in you. And that means that the things that you know in your head, the Holy Spirit will come and make them alive in your heart. He'll make them a fire of reality in your life. There's a famous Puritan pastor from the 17th century named Thomas Goodwin. And he said that one day he was watching a father and his little boy walking along the street. And as he was watching them, they were walking and talking. But at one point, the father and his little boy turned to each other. And the father swept up his little boy in his arms and he hugged him. And the little boy put his little arms around his daddy's neck. And the father hugged him and kissed him and said, I love you. And the son said back, I love you. And after this moment, this tender moment, the father puts the son down and they kept on walking. And Thomas Goodwin asks this question. He says, was that little boy more of a son in his father's arms than when he was out in the street? And obviously, legally, no. He was just as much a son walking next to him as he was in his dad's arms. There's objectively no difference, right? But subjectively, experientially, that hug made all the difference. In other words, the father's arms, he was experiencing his father's love. He was experiencing his sonship. And what that means is that when the Holy Spirit comes down in its fullness into your life, you begin to sense your father's arms around you. It's an assurance of who you are. You say, well, how does that work? I'll tell you how it works. It takes the Holy Spirit to be able to say this. Wait a minute. Someone as all-powerful as that loves me like that? Are you kidding me? He delights in me? He has gone to infinite depths and infinite lengths to save me at infinite cost to himself? He says he'll never let me go, that nothing in heaven and earth or time and eternity will ever make him lose me. He will always hold on to me, and he's going to glorify me. He's going to make me perfect, and he's eventually going to take everything bad out of my life. If all that's true, why am I worried? Why am I upset about money? Why do I care that that person snubbed me? Why do I ever get down? That's the voice of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. When you can talk to yourself like that, when theological truths become present, cherished realities. Now that's what happens on the inside. What does it look like on the outside? Well, the text tells us it looks like you're drunk. Not that any of us know what that looks like or feels like. There's some sinners in this room. I'm one of them. I've been drunk before, let's be honest. Look at verse 13. It said, they're drunk. These unbelievers are mocking them, saying they're filled with new wine. And later on, Paul picks up with this theme and says in Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. What does that mean? 
Well, it must mean that being filled with the Spirit must be a lot like being drunk. But also, it's unlike being drunk. How in the world? <laughs> this doesn't make sense. How is, how is being filled with the Spirit like being drunk? Well, the reason these, this crowd of unbelievers thought these disciples were drunk was because of their joyful fearlessness. You ever seen a drunk person? They'll jump from a balcony onto a table. They'll do all kinds of crazy stuff. They'll ask out a girl you never would have asked out. But these disciples had that same joyful fearlessness, but it led to them sharing the gospel in public without inhibition. There was a joy and a fearlessness. They were too happy, people thought. Does that make sense? They got to be drunk. And in that sense, being filled with the Spirit is a lot like being drunk because you feel your Father's arms around you. His love for you becomes as real as a mighty wind, and it makes you so joyful that you become fearless. But the Holy Spirit doesn't do it like alcohol does it. That's what Paul means by, when he says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Why? Well, those of you with a medical background, which is many of you, know that alcohol is a depressant. Wait, alcohol is a depressant? The people in Canton Square don't seem very depressed on Friday night, do they? No, I don't mean it makes you depressed. A depressant means alcohol depresses part of your brain function. See, the reason you're happy when you're drunk is because you're stupid. It's because you become less aware of reality. The things that bothered you when you were sober don't bother you anymore. Because I'm happy, because I can't really think straight. In other words, reality is hidden from me. What's really wrong is hidden from me. If you, you might be one of those folks who, when you have a bad day or a bad week, to hide from all your problems, you drink a bottle of wine or a, a handle of scotch to forget reality. And it's just going to hurt you. And it's making you happy for a moment, half the time, through stupidity, because alcohol is a depressant. But the Holy Spirit is the opposite. The Holy Spirit gives you joy through intelligence, not stupidity, because it shows you reality. It says, wait a minute, the only person whose opinion and power matters loves me. He loves me to the stars and back. He will do anything for me. He has done everything for me. He has given up what is most precious to him for me. And he never will let me go. You see, the Holy Spirit makes you more aware of reality. It shows you all of reality. And a result, the things that were bothering you suddenly become very small in comparison to his big love. The things that were bothering you are stupid now, not you. You see, there's stupid happiness and there's intelligent happiness, and the Holy Spirit gives you a joyful fearlessness by making you more aware of the reality of God's love for you, helping assure you that you are His child. And if you surrender to the Spirit every moment of every day, He will give you this joyful fearlessness. He will. Uh, Francis Chan, in his book, Forgotten God, which is a great book about the Holy Spirit. He writes about this couple in one of his chapters that has this joyful fearlessness that only comes from the Holy Spirit. He talks about this couple, Thomas and Jen. He says, have you ever met people who are so joyful and kind, you assume that they're fake? After all, no one could genuinely be that cheerful, 
Certainly not all the time. Thomas and Jen would be the first to admit their imperfections, but I secretly wish I could see those come out more so I would feel less guilty about myself. Jen works in our church office, and she's one of the people I think of when I hear the term spirit-filled. She doesn't have a list of accomplishments to amaze you. It is more about who she is than what she's done. I think you know the type, the person who convicts you just by how she lives her life and interacts with people. I first met Thomas because he was a chef and co-owner of an extremely nice and expensive steakhouse in town. He sent a gift certificate to my wife so we could enjoy a meal that most pastors can't afford. While we were there, Thomas shared with me how great the restaurant was doing. It had far exceeded expectations. In another three years, he would receive back not only his initial investment, but a huge bonus on top of that. The only problem was that God was calling him away from the restaurant then, not in three years. Thomas surprised his partners by giving up the money in order to pursue the ministry God was calling him to. Thomas left the fancy restaurant and took a position at a local rescue mission. He now cooks for the homeless, recovering addicts, and others who are seeking to rebuild their lives. He uses his training in the culinary arts to teach the homeless how to cook. He then helps them find jobs as cooks at local restaurants. Thomas and Jen are a young couple in our church body. They are a spirit-filled and spirit-led couple. They believe God will soon call them overseas, but until that day comes, they seek daily to follow as the Spirit leads, and they are doing it. Thomas and Jen are filled with the Holy Spirit, and this is the same Thomas Yoon, who's one of our elders, and Jen Yoon is our director of operations. They're not young anymore. But the, <laughs> Jen said, easy. <laughs> But they got the same Holy Spirit. And here's why I'm sharing that with you, because they, they're pissed that I'm sharing that with you. But anyway, <laughs> the reason I'm sharing that with you is because if you had a conversation with Thomas and Jen, the first thing they would tell you is, it's not us. I, I can't tell you how many times they told me, anything good that comes from me is not me. It's the Spirit of God in me. You see, Thomas and Jen aren't special. The Spirit of God is special. And he will do the same thing in your life. If you are aware and dependent on him, if you let him dwell in you and lead you, he will give you a joyful fearlessness like the disciples have. The Holy Spirit is an external power. He is an internal dweller. And last point, he is a global unifier. The third mark or the third phenomena of the Spirit in this text is found in verse 4 at the end. They're filled with the Holy Spirit, and this is the phenomena. They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then if you look at the bottom of verse 11, it says that the crowd is saying, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now, when we read this in the 21st century, we see the word tongues, we immediately think Pentecostalism, right? The branch of Christianity that emphasizes that Christians need to speak in tongues or in a private angelic prayer language that no one else can understand in order to be saved. But that is quite obviously not what is happening here. Why? Because the people can understand what's being said. So this is more of a Holy Spirit-empowered, universal, miraculous language in which people speak and all the nations can understand. Now, they're speaking. What are they saying? They were really happy, really joyful. What are they talking about? Well, they weren't talking about being happy. They, they weren't saying, well, I'm happy. Are you happy too? Yeah, I'm so happy. Oh, we're all so happy. No, that's not what's happening. They were talking about, it tells us verse 11, 
the mighty works of God, the wonders of God. The word mighty translates to the Greek word megalia, which means the mighty actions of God. It's a word that describes the miraculous acts of salvation of God throughout history. In the Old Testament, it referred to the, the parting of the Red Sea in which God delivers the children of Israel from oppression in Egypt. But in the New Testament, Testament, it means the miraculous way in which God has saved us through Jesus, his perfect life, his substitutionary death for us on the cross, and his glorious resurrection proving that he paid for our sins. They were talking about the gospel. And that's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, is to be joyfully obsessed with the gospel. If you're really spirit-filled, you're not thinking about how happy you are, though you are. You're thinking about the gospel, and it's making you happy. You're thinking about the mighty acts of God, and you're obsessed with the gospel. You're obsessed with talking to people about the gospel. You want to do it because your joy is grounded in the mighty works of God and what Jesus has done for you. And what's interesting here is that the Holy Spirit turned these disciples' joyful utterance of the gospel into a language that everyone there could understand. You see this list of nations and countries and people groups that are present listening? Verse 9, we saw Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, and a bunch more. We even got my boys, the Arabs, in here. Why in the world is Luke so careful to list out all these nationalities? Like it seems a little... A little extra. Why all these languages and people groups, which, by the way, was normal during the day of Pentecost. This was 50 days after the Passover. This was a holiday where all the Jews from around the world would come back to Jerusalem, and they would come for this great feast. And, of course, many of them did not speak Hebrew as their first language. They spoke the language of the place they were from. So you had all these different languages present. Why is he listing out all these languages? Because Luke wants to make sure that you and I know when the gospel was first preached to the world, it was preached in every language at once. Do you know the significance of that? By a deliberate miracle, by an act of the Holy Spirit, God made sure that no language and no culture had precedence over any other in the Christian faith. There is no language, there is no culture, there is no ethnicity that has primacy. Do you know what that means? There's a, a famous scholar named Lamin Sine who teaches at Yale Divinity School. He's an African professor of missions. He's written two famous books called One Translating the Message and the other is called Whose Religion is Christianity? And in his book, Translating the Message, Sine points out something that is pretty well known and accepted around the world. Muslims will tell you that the Quran, their holy book, cannot be translated. You say, what do you mean? I have an English copy of the Quran. Actually, I have one in my office. Yes, but even those English copies of the Quran will have likely a cover page that tells you this is not actually the Quran. This is an English explanation of the Quran. And I experienced this as a kid growing up in the mosque as a Muslim. I had to take Arabic classes so that I could truly understand the Quran. And Sine, this scholar, like me, grew up as a Muslim and then later converted to Christianity. But unlike me, Sine is a leading scholar of both religions, Christianity and Islam. He's taught at Harvard and Yale. And Sine says that 
as far as Muslims are concerned, God speaks Arabic. All the original revelation from Allah was in Arabic. All the original communication of Islam to the world was in Arabic. And therefore, if you want to hear God's word, you must hear it or read it in Arabic. Even praying in the mosque five times a day, we had to utter our prayers in Arabic for them to be truly heard. We did not pray in English. When the Quran is read at gatherings in mosques around America, they are not read in English or taught in English. They are taught in Arabic. There's actually a, a, a growing problem in the Muslim world where a lot of young Muslims are not taking on their parents' faith because the mosque is only teaching in Arabic and a lot of these young Muslims don't speak Arabic. They only speak English, so they're obviously not connecting with the religion and they're losing the younger generation. And Lamin Sine says, Christianity, because of Pentecost, is completely different. We do believe the word of God can be translated. If you have the Bible in Chinese, if you have it in English, if you have it in Swahili, you have the word of God in Chinese, in English, or in Swahili. But wait, there's more to it than that. Lamin Sine says that there is a unified Islamic culture, and a lot of that has to do with language, because language is often the carrier of culture. And he says, since there is an Arabic language and an Arabic culture, that wherever you are, any place that Islam is dominant, it in a sense takes the culture and makes it unified with all other Islamic cultures. There is a unified worldwide Islamic culture. And even all Muslims need to go to one place to truly worship. They need to take a, a, a hijab or a, 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 a trip to Mecca. This one universal culture. And he says, that's not true of Christianity because of Pentecost. Not at all. As a matter of fact, Christianity is the most radically diverse religion on the face of the earth. It takes radically different forms. Because Christianity, because of Pentecost, there is no one language. There is no one culture that is the right culture. And therefore, Christianity comes into every culture and renews every culture, and at the same time, honors every culture. For example, when you became a Christian, Lamin Sine says, it took you a little bit out of your American culture or wherever you're from. If you're Chinese and you become a Christian, you're lifted a little bit out of your culture to a degree. If you're African, you're lifted out of your culture to a degree because to every, every culture to some degree is judged by the gospel. And you're actually given a perspective as a Christian that shows you excesses and imbalances and overcorrections of your culture. For example, if Jesus came into this room right now and, and was, was critiquing or, or coming into American culture, he would honor and, and agree with us about our American ideal that every individual has dignity. Everyone has, should have the right to vote. Everyone should have the opportunity to succeed. That's at least an ideal in America, right? He would say yes and amen, right? But he would also judge and correct our culture and say he would critique our workaholism. He would critique our individualism. He would critique our postmodernism and our denial of objective truth. He would critique our technology obsession, wouldn't he? These are all overcorrections from leaving an Eastern culture and paving a new way. But the point Sine makes is that if you're an American and you become a Christian, you don't stop being an American. If you're an African and you become a Christian, you don't become a European. You're an African Christian, or you're a Korean Christian, or you're an Ecuadorian Christian. You're still in your culture. Christianity leaves you there. It does not steamroll every culture. It allows for incredible diversity. Why? 
Pentecost. Because God refused to let one culture or one language become the predominant one. The Holy Spirit embraces each individual's unique diversity and at the, at the same time unites all of humanity under one king. And if you really want to understand Pentecost, you need to go back to Genesis chapter 11 at the very beginning of the Bible. If you go all the way back to that section of scripture, you see the world used to have one universal language. And in Genesis 11, it tells us that the people in their arrogance and in their self-dependence and their desire to live for their own glory, tried to build a tower up to heaven called the Tower of Babel. They tried an act of defiance against God to create a tower and a new temple and a new religion that no longer required God. We're good on our own. And do you know how God judged them? God created multiple languages in which no one could understand each other and it killed this act of defiance. And it caused the people, quote, to be dispersed over the face of all the earth. You see, our sin resulted in separation amongst, and confusion amongst the nations in these different languages, which then later led to ethnocentrism and racism, which leads us to our time period where we still see slavery based on ethnicities, where we see bigotry, where we've seen cases like George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery. All of this is tied back to Genesis 11. In Genesis 11, man tried to climb up to God, and it resulted in multiple languages separating the world. But in Acts 2, through the power of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, God came down to man, and he made one new language, and he provided one Holy Spirit and one gospel under one King Jesus Christ, in which the nations are honored, but yet united. Why? Because the curse of Babel is being reversed. And because people and ethnicities and, and, and races who were once at each other's throats, people who didn't understand each other and didn't want to understand each other, through the power of the Holy Spirit, are brought back together. Why? Because the judgment and the separation we deserved came down on Jesus instead of us. The fire of God's wrath for our disobedience came down on Jesus so we could have the fire of God's warmth and God's love. The separation we deserve from God and we would have with each other came down on Jesus as he was crucified alone. Cast out so that we could be brought in. See, the various curses of the human race are reversed through the acts of Christ. And do you know what it means to be part of a church? Do you know what it means to be a part of Redemption City Church? This is not just a place where you come to get inspired. This is, this is a place where you gradually, slowly but surely, see and take part in the undoing of the curses that have come into the human race. Curses that are dividing people. This is not just a place where you get inner wonder and you get your psychological needs met. This is a place where the barriers built up in Genesis chapter 11 come crashing down through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a place where God shows the world that the human race, each ethnicity, each country, each people group can be united under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Don't you want to be a part of that? I want to be a part of that.
But if you want to be a part of that, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He is an external power who changes us. He's an internal dweller who gives us a joyful fearlessness. And he is the global unifier that unites all the peoples of the world. And in Revelation, we see every tribe, every tongue, every nation. We're going to still see black and white and Hispanic people in heaven. You'll be able to tell. But we'll all be under the same king, locked arms, worshiping him together. And this is a picture of that right now. You may say, I want to be filled with the Spirit, but I just haven't felt Him. I don't feel God's arms around me. Can I just encourage you? Keep coming. Because the book of Acts is about that. And until then, throw yourself on the Spirit of God and say, Spirit, change me. Make me new. And watch what He does. Because He did it to me. He is doing it to me. May He create a church that looks different in the world. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, thank you so much for your ministry in our lives and our hearts. Would you give us an awareness of who you are and what you're doing? Give us a dependence. I pray we would, each member of our church would walk step by step in the power of your spirit, dependent on you to change us, dependent on you to work through us, dependent on you to, to reach this city with the gospel. Spirit, do something miraculous that only you can do with and may you get all the glory as you turn sinners into saints, to people who don't look like Jesus and to people who look just like him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find other messages or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. Thank you.